the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Space Tethers and Heroic Shipyards, Precepts, Concepts, Contextual Healing, and Subjunctional Kneeling, if only it were so. Plus, we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. This time we have an interview with Eric James Stone. Eric talks about his debut novel, Unforgettable. Eric is an award-winning short story writer who's been very prolific in recent years. Now he's got his first novel out, and it's a lot of fun. We'll get into the concept of it in a moment, but it's pretty entertaining to think about. We also continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. First, the news. The January to February free fiction and nonfiction is now up at the main website at Bain.com. We post this free content once a month, usually on the 15th or 16th, and there's always a story and an interesting nonfiction piece there. The nonfiction is usually on some cool aspect of science, the military, or other areas we think might tickle our readers, and how they relate to science fiction. This time we have a very cool space rescue short story by Terry Burleson. The story is called Adrift. Terry has written nonfiction for us before. He's a former space shuttle mission control specialist in orbital mechanics and a science journalist, and he's done some cool pieces for the website before. This is the first short story we've published of his, and it's really good, and the MacGuffin has to do with can you believe it? A cool piece of orbital mechanics. So go check that out. Also up is a survey of the shipyard as hero in both history and fiction. This is by Jim Bill. Jim is a retired nuclear engineer and writer, and he surveys perhaps the underappreciated shipyards of history and how they change the face of war and history in general. And he also deals with how shipyards come into play in science fiction space yards, particularly in the fiction of David Weber in the Honorverse. Both Adrift and Jim's article about the shipyards can now be found at Bain.com. Later, they can be found in the Bain Free Short Story and the Bain Free Nonfiction Ebook Anthologies. These are available at BainEbooks.com, and they are absolutely free. So check out all of our cool fiction and nonfiction after it's been presented on the website. It's all collected there at BainEbooks.com. I want to welcome Eric James Stone to the podcast. Hi, Eric. Hi, Tony. Thanks for having me on. Eric is a Nebula Award winner and a Hugo Award nominee for short stories. He has over 50 stories published in venues such as the Year's Best SF-15, Analog, Nature, and Orson Scott Card's Intergalactic Medicine Show. He lives in Utah with his wife, Darcy, a high school physics teacher, and his daughter, Honor, 
did you just tell me that she was named after uh, a certain honor we might know? Yes, she was named after Honor Harrington. Uh, the, the Honor Harrington series is my favorite series of books, and uh, so when my wife suggested the name Honor, I was not about to turn that down. Very cool. That's a great name. I'm surprised that more people don't just, uh, maybe it'll, you've started a trend. <laughs> yeah, actually, there there is someone else uh, in my neighborhood who just uh, had a baby a few months ago named Honor, but it's with a U rather in it. Uh, you know, the British spelling of Honor. Uh huh. Very different. <laughs> so, well, now at Booksellers Everywhere is Eric's first novel, Unforgettable. Eric, is the the book based on a short story or a novella, or was it always a novel from from the beginning? Well, when I first started writing it, I had no idea what it was. Um, I was uh, just, you know, it was uh, just after New Year's Day, and I was resolving to write every day, and so I just started writing something uh, about this guy who couldn't be remembered. And um, I wrote a few scenes uh, about his life and took them to my writing group, and they said, Eric, this has to be a novel. You've got to write this novel. And I basically said, well, I have no idea what the novel would be about. You know, I, there, there's this character, but I have no plot. I, I sat down and kind of outlined a plot for it and, uh, and started writing the novel. Do you, do, you kinda, do you remember the moment of inspiration? Because this is really a high-concept kind, of kind of a story. Um, I don't remember the exact moment of inspiration, but I know what triggered the inspiration. Um, I, I was, you know, with, with family over the holidays, and uh, we watched various movies, and one of the movies we watched was Fifty First First Dates, the Adam Sandler, Drew Barrymore movie, where she has um, a short-term memory problem, so she can only remember uh, things during the... Uh, you know, during a day, and then she forgets what happened the next, you know, so when she wakes up, she doesn't remember everything that happened the day before. Um, and, you know, so I was thinking about how difficult it was for Adam Sandler to form a relationship with her, given those constraints, and I started thinking about, well, what if, you know, everyone didn't remember you? Uh, you know, that, and that, so that's kind of where that came from. Yeah, so that, I did find this premise really delightful. Um, you really, you have to buy into it when you're reading the book, but your main character is so winning that you want to just say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to accept this. Um, explain in a little bit more depth what the, the MacGuffin is here in the book. I mean, basically you said it. Basically the idea is that no one can remember the main character, Nat, for more than a minute after they lose sensory contact with him. So if they don't hear him or see him, uh, for a minute, then they forget he was even there. So, you know, in kind of looking at that idea, I thought, well, what sort of what sort of life would that person have, and um, what could he do with his life that was useful? And I came up with, well, you know, he could do some stuff for the CIA. What is your uh, pseudoscientific? Uh, explanation, or actually your scientific explanation for uh, for this. Your Dr. Reze character has a, an idea that sounds like your kind of the author's actual explanation. Um, can you tell us some sort of uh, the, the quantum basis for how, why Eric is so forgettable? I mean, Eric, I'm sorry, Nat. Nat. <laughs> oh my God. It's not Mary Sue. Oh, we certainly remember you. 
yeah, well, uh, you know, when I first came up with the idea, I didn't have a scientific basis for it. Um, and so when I started developing it into a novel, um, I thought about, well, what could cause that to happen? And uh, the first idea I came up with was uh, some sort of pheromone-based thing that interfered with the storage of short-term memories. And so I played around with that idea for a while, but I decided that didn't fit what I wanted to do with, with the character because a pheromone-based thing w- wouldn't work over the telephone. It, 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 would, it wouldn't interfere with photographs you know, or video cameras or anything like that. Um, and so I started looking for other potential explanations, and I started thinking about the fact that our, our brains you know, use basically electrons uh, and electricity in the storage of memory, um, and uh, cameras use photons you know, and things like that. And so I, I started thinking, well, you know, those things are subject to quantum mechanics. And uh, so I thought, can I come up with a quantum mechanical explanation for, for this? And I recalled, of course, the, the famous thought experiment of Schrodinger's cat, in which, you know, the, for those who aren't familiar with the idea, a, a cat is placed inside a box, a sealed box, uh, and there's a, basically a radiation detector that has a 50% chance of detecting a particle emission from a radioactive source during one hour. At the end of the hour, uh, oh, and if it detects it, then it breaks open a flask of poison to kill the cat. So at the end of the hour, before opening up the box, the question is, is the cat alive or is the cat dead? And from a quantum mechanics perspective, until you open the box, the cat exists in what's called a superposition of being both alive and dead. So there are two probability ways. There's a probability function, and until that probability function uh, wave collapses, uh, the cat is both alive and dead. Once it collapses, it goes into one of the two states. So that basic, with that basic framework, I thought, well, you know, what if um, people's minds, you know, if, if that exists as kind of a superposition of being there and not being there, and in people's minds, the probability wave function always collapses to the side that he wasn't there, even if he was. And uh, so that, that's kind of the, the scientific uh, speculation uh, that I used in order to explain why people's minds can't remember him, why computers can't remember him, and, and things like that. But it, that ha- it, the, it has kind of limits. When, when there's a big change physically, like if he takes something he has taken it and it is gone, and they don't don't necessarily know how it was taken. They just know that it's gone. And I did allow for photographs. If the photographs are developed or printed while he is still, before he has been forgotten, essentially. Um, the idea being that the chemical change in the, uh, the film, you know, expresses itself at that point so so firmly that the, the quantum mechanics can't undo it. So basically, the, you can, he can be remembered kind of by a hard copy of things. Right. 
in certain circumstances, which plays into the story, of course. Um, well, let's talk about Nat, uh, our hero. He's a really interesting guy because because this power or curse that he's he's had it since birth, and just talk about his upbringing a little because I found that really affecting and and touching in a way. Can can you explain how such a forgettable boy managed to survive and become socialized? Yeah, basically, uh, it's because he had a good mother. Um, she had to you know, pin notes to him saying, hey, this is your child, uh, to remind herself. And she kept extensive journals uh, of you know, their interactions so that she could essentially... You know, because she she could stay with him the whole day and remember him for the whole day, but overnight, going to sleep, she would forget about him. Uh, but the journals would allow her to essentially build a relationship, uh, you know, based on what she had recorded in in prior, uh, you know, in from prior days, so that she could, you know, be a mother to him. And so that's how he was able to survive infancy um, and uh, until the time he was a teenager. Uh, yeah, so that's... Uh, basically, it was because of a good mother yeah. that he was able to survive. Well, things things go awry. We probably shouldn't say exactly how, but how, how did Matt Nat get hooked up working for the CIA? Um, what drove him to do it and... How the heck does the process work since they can't remember him any better than anyone else? Right. Well, basically, um, because of you know what happened when he was 13 that uh, separated him from his mother, he was forced to essentially steal to live because, you know, how else can a 13-year-old who can't be remembered get stuff to eat and, uh, and you know, stuff like that. So... So he becomes a thief and learns how to use his powers for that. Um, and then there's a, a crystallizing moment that makes him realize that being a thief, you know, and stealing from people isn't isn't the kind of thing his mother would have wanted him to be doing. And so he try tries to figure out how he could use his powers for good and decides that maybe he can work for the CIA. So he he manages to uh, get himself talking to a CIA recruiter, and he proves uh, his power to that recruiter. Uh, and at that point, the CIA is interested enough to, that they figure out a way to make it work for him so that they can send him on missions uh, and he can accomplish things and, and report back to them. The main, the main method that they use is he calls into uh, his handler at the CIA uh, and tells the handler to find a, a particular uh, paper file uh, in a particular drawer um, that has the details about him and all, his, all of his missions. Um, so that's basically how the CIA can... can work with him. I love the fact that the, his, his control agent... It has early onset Alzheimer's, so they picked out somebody who wouldn't be surprised that he didn't remember him so much. Yes, uh, I, I, I thought uh, that was uh, a, a nice thing. Um, I, you know, I, I, I've known people with Alzheimer's, and it's a, 
a terrible disease, and I just kind of wanted a way to to make that work, you know, do some little bit of good, uh, you know, that, that this man has the, the, a terrible disease, but it does allow him to, to interact with Matt more easily than someone who doesn't have severe memory problems. Yeah. So... I try. I mean, it was fun to imagine the series of notes. Um, just, just to to put yourself because you stay in Nat's point of view. It's a first person. Just to imagine how Edgar's going about this every time he gets a call. Why can't Edgar have a post-it note that just that he puts on his wall that says, "There's a forgotten agent named Nat Morgan." Um, would you come up with some alternate explanation after he forgot him and, and get rid of it? Why does the file have to be in a in a compartment somewhere. Um, basically, the, uh, the reason why I had it be in a specific place is so that Nat can always tell uh, tell his handler where to find it. If it wasn't in a specific place, Nat calling in would be seen as a crank call, uh, call because he wouldn't have proof of what yeah. he was saying. And the people like, I mean, he delivers pizza, for instance, in one instance, and the person forgets him, but they come up with an explanation for the pizza being there. Yes. Uh, basically, the, the idea is that when the, when the wave function collapses, you know, and you know, people's memories often try to account for their current situation, uh, you know, so if Matt knocked somebody down... You know, when they no longer remember him, they assume they must have tripped. You know, and uh, and so that's how their memory fills in the blank to connect up. You know, how things were with how how things are now after Nat is gone and they have forgotten him. So, what kind of stuff does Nat do for the CIA? Um, mostly uh, stealing things that they want to get a hold of. Most of what he does is not extremely urgent uh, stuff because extremely urgent stuff, they, you know, if if they sent Nat to do something that they thought was extremely urgent, and then they forgot they had sent him, they would send somebody else, and then they'd start interfering with each other. I uh, this takes place in the the near future, and I kind of imagined that the CIA might want to get hold of various technologies are being developed in other nations, and so that was the kind of thing they would task him to do. Um, and, uh, you know, he would get a hold of it and bring it back, and then they would have it. They wouldn't remember he was the one who got it to them. They, they, generally, they would come up with some other explanation as to how it, it arrived in their hands, you know. Uh, but his handler would would know in looking at the file, oh, he's the one who brought us that technology and things like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, essentially he's a, he's a really good thief because of his ability. Um, some of his methodology is pretty great. Um, using the rules that you've set up, he can go up to a person and ask them questions, uh, and then if they if they put him off, he can go away and come back and, and use the information he got to get further. Kind of like a, like a Groundhog Day uh, on a miniature scale or something like that. Yes. And, uh, 
you know, so he 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 figures out how to use his uh, his powers effectively uh, to to do things. Um, but with some things, uh, he's you know he for instance he learns to pick locks and things like that. But in many ways he he's overly reliant on his talent to get get him out of things, and so that leads to to some conflict later on in the in the novel. Yeah, it's he's used it. Uh, he's used his ability also to, um, well, to pick up women, right? Yes, uh, although that's uh, mostly in there for for the humor of imagining how it would go, because you know, essentially he can't set up a date in advance, and uh, if he even if he does, you know, manage to invite someone to go to dinner, for example. If she gets up and goes to the restroom, she'll forget it. So, uh, you know, while he can use the, the, the technique to, to find out what interests a woman in order to, to pick her up, it's, you know, it's not likely to lead to very much because uh, they're going to forget him pretty quick. Yeah, unless he follows her into the restroom, which is <laughs> something he doesn't really want to do. Uh Speaking of love, he does get a love interest in the book, and, and along comes Yelena Semyonova. Um, she's she's a real opera. I mean, she's a professional um, operative. Can you tell us a bit about her? Yeah, uh, basically, she um, used to be working for the the Russian uh, secret service, and then um, then she quit. Uh, and she, when at the time Nat meets her, she is uh, working for the Russian mob, stealing technology for them. When Nat and Elena go after the same piece of technology, that's that's when they end up meeting. And uh, she is uh, super competent at what she does. Um, and so, once she understands Nat's methods. She is not particularly impressed at how professional he is, so that uh, that gives a little bit of conflict. Uh, well, she's she's motivated by, and she's she's working for the mob, but she has a, a, a specific reason. Yes, there there's a there's some backstory to, to that. Uh, she's she's working uh, basically because the the mobsters kidnapped her sisters. Yeah, that's why she's working for them. Yeah. And something happens to connect Nat and um, Yelena, and for the first time, um, she she can remember him. Right? Um, this really affects Nat. In I mean, this is the first person that's ever remembered him. Yeah, that uh, and and that's you know a, a complete shock to him because it's never happened before. And basically, he it's completely natural that he would fall in love with her. Um, because she she's the one person that he can have a relationship with, you know, and uh, so that it, it has a, a huge impact on him that that somebody can remember him. Yeah. Well, it's it's not only like a first love; it's the first possible instance ever of of any uh, of that kind of connection. And the uh, it's pretty. I mean, it's obvious that there's a lot of humor in the, this novel. It's a, it's a it's not a humorous uh, romp. There's a lot of uh, scary stuff and, and thriller action, but um, there's there's some great stuff in it. It's got a Bond like character to it. Um, and our bad guy is really bad. <laughs> he could he could be a Bond villain. 
Kazim Yanshidi. Can you tell us about him and why he's he's so formidable without too much of a spoiler? Yeah, basically, um, he's a, an Iranian oil billionaire. Um, but you know, this is taking place you know, at some point in the, the near future. You know, I, I envision it maybe twenty, you know, fifteen, twenty years in the future, and he can foresee the end of oil money. Um, you know, he, he sees that uh, other technologies are. Uh, developing that are going to make oil obsolete, and so so he's working on other things. And um, the CIA uh, believes that he's uh, trying to make Iran a, a big player in uh, quantum supercomputers. His uh, his actual goal is a little more ambitious than that. Yeah. And I'll I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> Well, it might be interesting to to briefly talk about how quantum computing works for those that aren't familiar. It's really cool. It's it's not like um, it's not like the computers we know, right? In, entirely. Yeah, quantum computing is mind-boggling, as is much of quantum physics. Um, you know, we've t- already talked about Schrodinger's cat the existing in a superposition of you know alive and dead. Well, in quantum computing. You know, if you're familiar with regular computing, you know it's all ones and zeros. You know, and and so you've got either a one or a zero, and you perform calcul- calculations based on on combinations of ones and zeros. Well, in quantum computing, uh, oh, and that one or a zero is called a bit. Well, in quantum computing, they have what are called qubits uh, for quantum bit, and a quantum bit can exist as a superposition of zero and one at the same time, and you can perform calculations on it and eventually have the you know uh, without having collapsed the wave function yet. And eventually, at the end, you collapse the wave function and you get the answer, even though you didn't know whether you, it was a one or a zero while you were making the calculations. This has uh, some very practical applications uh, in the real world with code breaking. And if we you know, do start seeing, I mean, Google seems to have already some, a, uh, some company they bought uh, is doing what appears to be at least partially quantum calculations uh, in a computer. But basically things that would take you know, hundreds of years uh, for a normal computer to crack, uh, a quantum computer can crack uh, in a very short time. And um, one of the ways to think about quantum computing, it's not necessarily an accurate description of what happens, but it's a, a kind of a model to use to get sort of the idea of what's going on. You know, you, you can imagine that uh, a, a quantum computer is, that is trying to figure out the ten-digit ten combination to a safe. You know, normally a normal computer would have to just keep trying variations until it finds the right one, uh, and you know that takes you know uh, quite a while as it goes through all those numbers. Um, a quantum computer, it's as if it splits itself into you know, uh, 
billions of different computers, each one calculating, you know, uh, you know each one trying a different number, um, and then the wave function collapses to the correct co combination, and so they all merge back together, and you have the correct combination, having done, having tried every possible number simultaneously instead of trying one num number after another. So, yeah, the, the quantum computing uh, has some real possibilities for making our current codes obsolete. And yeah. In part, explains why the CIA is interested in getting a hold of quantum computing technology in the novel. Yeah, sort of like uh, an answer resolves as a... And you have it be that way in the book as um, as sort of comes, an answer sort of comes into focus, right? Right. An image kind of that you're looking for or something like that. So, so um, you mentioned that you had, uh, that you sort of, uh, you had a writing group you worked with and you ran this uh, idea by them. What are you working on now? I'm currently working on a short story. It's kind of weird. <laughs> uh, basically... The story uh, is a book review from the future, uh, reviewing a historical fantasy set in a pseudo-21st century America, um, and pointing out all the historical details that the author uh, gets wrong, except that the person doing the review is also wrong a lot about a lot of the details. It's a very meta sort of piece, but uh, hopefully people will find it fairly amusing. Yeah, it sounds funny. Well, what is your what is your writing process like? Um, was it a hard transition to writing this novel, or, or was it just um, a, a further step in making something a little longer? Yeah, um, my writing process, um, I found with short fiction... I can I can write without an outline uh, fairly easily. I will occasionally outline a short story, but I usually do not. With novels, I have found I have to have an outline, or else I get bogged down after a chapter or two and re realize I don't know where I'm going, and and basically I quit writing it. Uh, so I've got several barely started novels on my hard drive that have no outlines. Um, I have two finished novels, both of which, which I outlined. Um, uh, this, this one, obviously, and then the first, my first novel, uh, an epic fantasy that will probably never see the light of day. Um, I was recently looking, looking at the prologue to it, and uh, you know, I started writing it back in 2002, and looking at it now, I I go, wow, that's full of cliches. I, you know, many of us have epic fantasy novels in our in our distant closet, in our something that uh, maybe every uh, every every writer has to has to pound against those rocks um, for the first time. Yep. But when I when I started when I once I had the outline for Unforgettable, I wrote the, the first draft over the course of three months. At the time, I was unemployed, which certainly helps with writing time. Um, I, I currently work as a, a web developer uh, and system administrator for my day job. 
uh, back at that, uh, when I first started writing Unforgettable, I was uh, between jobs, and that helped helped a lot with uh, with getting the time to write uh, and and finishing it. The once I had the first draft, there was still a lot of revision that had to be done, and um, in particular, because I'm coming from a, a short fiction background where essentially the idea is strip out everything from it except what is absolutely necessary so that it, it, you can get it down to the, the absolutely essential elements of the story, and that's it. Uh, that works for short fiction. Novel readers have you know, different expectations and um, you know, often want more description of things, and, and that was an adjustment for me. And because uh, I have a tendency to write very short, uh, and the, the the original version of the novel was very short, and so I had to figure out how to expand it uh, without just adding fluff. And uh, so that that was a t- difficult revision process for me, but I, I learned quite a bit in doing it. Well, well, it turned out great. The book is unforgettable. And um, it's called Unforgettable Too by Eric James Stone. It is now out at booksellers everywhere. Thank you so much for being with us, Eric. Thanks for having me on the show. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. This portion of Under a Graveyard Sky is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Now here is another segment of John Ringo's novel of zombie infestation and the heroic humans who fight back, determined to pull the world from disaster and humanity itself from the brink of annihilation. It's all taking place under a graveyard sky. Chapter 23 P.O. Kuzma, this is the U.S. Navy. The radio squawked five minutes later. Kuzma had started to wonder if it was all a hoax and looked at the radio as if it was radioactive. Kuzma at a calling station. Who is this? A submarine, obviously. Answer these questions without thinking. Mother's maiden name. Thomas, Kuzma said. Birthplace. Mine, Burlington, Kansas. Hers, Peoria. First college attended. University of Kansas, Kuzma said. Verified. Stand by. Petty officer, it's good to hear that some of you survived, a new voice said. This circuit isn't secure, so there are some things you're not going to be told. To give you two other answers, so you know I'm looking at your service record, you enlisted on April 22nd, and you hold the USCG Rescue Medal with two stars. What I'm going to tell you is that this is the highest level commander you're going to talk to for, well, until someone finds a higher level one. Yes, sir, Kuzma said. So, it's really all gone? More or less, the voice said. But you, or rather, and I quote, 
Commodore Wolf called us, not the other way around. Yes, sir, Kuzma said. The Commodore, and he really doesn't like to be called that, sir, he's asking for materials from the Campbell for his mission. Specifically, they're low on shotgun rounds, and he'd like to offload fuel and supplies and generally, well, stripper, sir. I'm not, I can't authorize that. I can see his reasoning. We can't man her as is, but I can't go with that, sir. I'm not even sure I can go with a voice on a radio, even if you're looking at my service report. How about if I can tell an attack sub what to do, the voice said. Is that sufficient authority? I'd rather not surface the sub just to show off, but if I order it, it will. So do I turn over the stuff? Kuzma asked. What do you think of Commodore Wolf? The voice asked. Is that even his real name? No, sir, Kuzma said. It's his handle. He's a former Aussie para, or so he says. Who are Sea Wolf and She Wolf? The voice asked. His daughter, sir, Kuzma said. And that's part of the screwy part. Sir, none of these people really know what they're doing. I mean, Seawolf is 15, for God's sake. And she's up for her own boat. She-Wolf is one of the people who cleared the boat. She's 13. I mean, she's big for her age, and she knows how to handle guns, but... Honestly, sir, I... I helped clear the boat with She-Wolf, and... She's scary. But the boats? None of these people have so much as a captain's license, sir. And... I can see what they're doing. I think we should help. I'm not so sure about... I'm not sure about anything, sir. And, sir, I just got out from clearing the boat, and it was... Christ, sir, it was really bad. It's just... I don't even know if I'm coherent, sir. Petty officer, the voice said sharply. Calm down. You're doing great. You're a goddamn credit to the Coast Guard that you can be this coherent after what you've been through. Okay? Calm down. You're doing fine. Yes, sir, Kuzma said. Sir, there really isn't anything on land? Family? The voice asked softly. Yes, sir, Kuzma said. My... I have kids, sir. So do I, the voice said. They're in D.C. I was... not... Petty Officer Kuzma, go get Wolf, then stand by. It appears I need to talk to the Commodore. Yes, sir, Kuzma said. He seems like a good guy, sir. But, I mean, they really don't know nothing about the sea. I'm surprised any of them have survived at all. These are the kind of people that we usually rescue, not the other way around. We are living in strange times, Petty Officer, the voice said. Get the Commodore. Wolf. So, you're a Commodore. I'm in command of six small boats, Steve said calmly, and a support vessel. In the World War II British Navy, I'd be a reserve hostilities only lieutenant commander or so. I was given the moniker by my next senior captain, and it was voted upon, against my wishes, by the captain's board. Feel free to call me Mr. Wolf or Captain Wolf. May I have a name? 
Mr. Blount? My mother's name. It's not a huge security issue. We are in contact with all the rest of the remaining headquarters, such as they are, and they know who I am. God, Steve said, his eyes closing. You're the NCCC. You're well-versed in security issues. I was a history teacher, Steve said, including 20th century. My master's in history was on the defense of Malta during World War II. I thought that was bad. If the NCCC is talking to me, that's even worse than my worst nightmares. That means this little flotilla really is it, doesn't it? You're unfortunately perceptive. There are other forces, but... The subs aren't infected, but they also don't have vaccine, Steve said. I've had time to think about this, sir. You're Australian? I'm a naturalized American citizen, sir, Steve said. But at this point, I think borders are a bit passe. But that as it may, I'm an American. Passport and everything. Two children who are quite American. From what I've heard, the best of America, the NCCC said. Fought their way out of the last concert in New York, Steve said. A tale I'd be more than happy to tell as soon as we can get you out of whatever fortress you're in. Come again? My plan had been to just survive, Steve said. Keep hiding. Find a place my family and I could survive. Let someone like, well, you, sir, handle this. But you save one person and it gets addictive. And this situation annoys me, sir. I... Shortly after we took the toy, I told my wife we were not going to bow to the zombies, sir. So yes, my goal, not plan, goal, is a zombie-free world. I'll start with the US, so that wasn't a joke. Say the goal is to get to the point where a lightly armed convoy can pull up with buses and deliver vaccine to your people. And then you can take over and I can go fishing. Don't ask me what the plan is, though. I didn't know I was going to find a Coast Guard cutter. I don't know what disaster or success is going to occur next. All I can do is work the goal, sir. Ambitious. Do you think you can do it? I've only got a few boats, sir, Steve said. But if I have the CG personnel behind me, officially, it will help. I've got one active duty special forces sergeant, but I'm going to need more help from surviving military. The sub-personnel, especially, as soon as we can produce vaccine. I'm going to need their technical expertise if this is going to work. About that, the NCC said. We picked up the snippet where some was mentioned. Might I inquire where you secured it? I don't know, Steve said. Can I get a written pardon? There was a long pause. Were you... Active in producing it. I was not someone who acquired the materials, Steve said cautiously. I knew someone who was, and I know someone who was involved in production of vaccine. Attenuated virus vaccine? Successfully. Steve thought about that for a long time. Yes. Know someone, as in they know how to produce it, have done so? And are available? Yes, 
Although, absent that pardon, you're going to have to break out thumbscrews to get me to say who. And thumbscrews won't work. Stand by. That is better than we could have hoped for, Dr. Dobson said. He had been brought in on the conversation early on. I still don't think some drug dealer, Commander Freeman started to say. Wolf, despite his grandiose name, does not sound like a drug dealer, Galloway said, holding up a hand. Captain Wolf, Blount, over. Wolf. First of all, since I didn't cover it, no, there will be no charges. Can I absolutely guarantee that someday, in the fullness of stupidity, some group will not bring charges of crimes against humanity for production of attenuated vaccine from human spinal cords? No. We are human, and such things happen. What I can guarantee, and I'll get someone to send you a facsimile of a document to the effect, is that to the extent I have the legal power to do so, I will retroactively permit the production as well as authorize future production for the good of the United States and humanity. That way, if there is ever an ICC again, we can both hang. But right now, without vaccine, we are truly stuck. I won't ask you to reveal much about it, but we need to get some issues straight. Doctor? This is Dr. James Dobson. I'm the acting director of the CDC. Can you detail at all the nature of the person you have who is familiar with production of attenuated vaccine? What are his or her qualifications? None, essentially, Steve said carefully. They were recruited by a clandestine but highly professional lab to assist in the production. They were the primary laboratory technician for the production of the vaccine my family used and currently has. We only have a few remaining doses which I'm using for clearance personnel, since they are more likely to get blood contamination. It works. None of us have contracted the disease, and my daughter, Handel She-Wolf, contracted the virus after only the primer, but survived. It was touch and go, but she made it. Sounds like his wife was the lab tech, Bryce said, grimacing. That had to be cold. Can you define highly qualified? Dr. Dobson said, in a way that... Fully prepared lab, including scanning electron microscope and all that sort of stuff, Wolf replied. Run by a PhD in microbiology. I hope you won't mind if I avoid the name, but he used to work for you, Doctor. He was a consultant for a... well-heeled group. Corporate lab, Dobson said, grimacing. The FBI was aware they were around. New York, L.A., and San Francisco were particularly rife with them. They produced the vaccine for senior corporate officers and support. But they were professionals. But a lab tech? That's not the same as the doctor. Could he or she do it again? The problem is, and you probably know, doctor, quality control, Steve said. The doctor running the lab did the quality assurance. I was not directly involved, but I understand that getting the strands just right is critical. Not too much radiation, not too little, no contamination. And we sure as hell can't do it with what we've got. We'll need something resembling a lab and a good x-ray machine for sure. 
I don't suppose any of the subs have one? Galloway looked at the Navy liaison who shook his head. They have an X-ray machine, but insufficient lab equipment and materials to do production, much less quality control. Steve looked at the deck and wanted to throw the radio as far as he could. Stand by, please. Roger. Dallas, Galloway said. Can you observe the subject? Roger, Bradburn said, looking at his screen. He'd popped the periscope up for the chat. Transferring. That is a man in deep thought, Galloway said, looking at the video. The presumed Commodore Wolf was just standing there, looking at the deck. Then he straightened up and keyed the radio. Blount? Wolf, over. Go ahead. The way this was going to go was that I was just going to do one thing after another and hope that nobody big enough to stop me would get in the way. Not that those things were going to be as bad as, say, a zombie apocalypse, but they were going to get right up some people's nose, and they were going to be my plan and intentions. Example, I can go loot that coastie vessel. I really do need the ammo. The coasties might get it in their noses, but they don't have any guns. And from what my daughter has told me, and I saw, they're not going to be much use clearing any time soon, if ever. I suppose you could torpedo my boats, but that wouldn't get you anywhere. But, at a certain point, I'm for sure going to need military personnel. A lot of military personnel. I'm probably going to need a working helicarrier. I'm going to need Marines. The problem, and I'm laying it on you since I'm thinking you're not really busy, and I am, is how to do that. Because I said that I've got a goal. I don't know when I'll secure that goal, but it sure is a billabong is dry isn't going to be tomorrow. And I won't secure it ever without your support. But you don't know me from a wallaby. Somebody else might muckle this out, I suppose. I can find a boat for these coasties and they can muckle it, maybe. Right now, I don't care. I'm tired. Myself, a green beanie sergeant and my 13-year-old bloody daughter just cleared a bloody cutter and rescued your bloody coasties. And we used a bunch of priceless ammo doing it. I'm tired. I've been doing this for weeks with no bloody support and no real reason for anybody to do it but me asking them nice-like. I'm going to seed the cutter. Mark it. And when you decide if the coasties are going to work with me or not, get back to me. If not, I'll find them a boat. Hell, I have a spare I can't use, and they can do whatever they'd like with it. Rescue, clear, or go bloody pirate. But I'm not going to try to read the mind of some bloke I've never met on the radio. I'm going to stop doing that today, and I'm not going to do it tomorrow, or a year from now. So when you figure out how we're going to work together, or if we're going to work together, have your bloody sub come by and say hello. That's not being impolite, but I really don't have the time for this, and I'm tired. We usually give people a few days to get their wits back. If you don't want to work with us, I'll give the Coasties the Lodge in three days, and you can do whatever you'd like. Wolf out.
That is a man on the ragged edge, Bryce said quietly. A paladin in hell, Ellington said. Excuse me, Galloway said. I understand the words. Oh my God, Bryce said, shaking her head. Congratulations, you get the geek win for the week, Colonel Ellington. Some context, Galloway asked tightly. Colonel, Bryce asked, would you care to explain? Ellington twitched and looked at her helplessly. General, the NCCC asked. It's from Dungeons and Dragons, sir, Bryce said, smiling tightly. Seriously? Freeman said, snorting. Then he paused. General, how did you- Air Force Academy, Commander, Bryce said, smiling at him coquettishly. They'd learned by now that when the acting CJCS went cute, that they were about to have their heads handed to them. Is that a problem? No, ma'am, the commander said, holding his hand up to his mouth to hide the grin. There is a picture in one of the D&D books, sir, Bryce said, turning back to the NCCC. A knight in armor standing on a precipice, wielding a sword against a horde of demons. The caption is, a paladin in hell. Thinking about it, that does sound rather apropos of Commodore Wolf, Galloway said, nodding at Ellington. Every material, every person has a breaking point, Ellington said, staring into the distance. Fighting the darkness forces one to either be the light or embrace the dark. Every paladin finds his precipice. Colonel, Bryce said carefully as the silence dragged out. Marine? Ma'am, Ellington said, snapping upright. Colonel, I'm not sure where you just went, Bryce said, but we need you present in this reality. Or do I need to call the medics? No, ma'am, the colonel said sharply. Present and accounted for, General. My recommendation is a naval captaincy, sir. Excuse me? Galloway said. You're joking, right? Commander Freeman said tightly. Granting the Commodore a naval captaincy would allow him to command military personnel as well as direct civilian technical experts, sir, thereby reducing his overall difficulty load. Furthermore, absent finding and rescuing a higher-ranking military officer, which would require in all probability the clearance of a Nimitz-class aircraft carrier or better, or more likely the clearance of a major ground base, he would outrank any of the current submarine commanders. The captaincy would be contingent upon allowance of communications by professional officers to assure some semblance of reasonable command responsibilities. Absent that choice, he could outline his plans, such as they are, to the submarine commanders, and upon developing some method of vaccine production, turn it over to them, sir. A captaincy? Commander Freeman snapped. A captaincy? Are you insane? To some unknown Australian pirate wannabe? For that matter, Undersecretary Galloway does not have the authority to grant a captaincy. As a matter of fact, Bryce said. I do, in fact, Commander, Galloway said tightly. It's in the fine print. I can even give a brevet to flag rank. Obviously, it has to be approved by the Senate in time, but for that, we'd have to have a Senate. I, Freeman said, his face tight, I was not aware, and meant no disrespect, sir. 
Colonel Ellington, thank you for that novel suggestion, Galloway said. That language is not to suggest I am dismissing it. It is, however, I feel, premature. Right now we have a virtual unknown whose only claim to fame is rescuing a few people including some Coast Guard personnel and possibly knowing how to produce vaccine. I would say that we need more CV than that before making such a significant decision. That is all. Yes, sir, Ellington said, then twitched. As for Commander Freeman, Galloway said, I can understand your distaste for the very idea. You are a professional naval officer who has spent many years honing his expertise and the idea of just handing a commission, much less a captaincy, to, as you put it, a pirate wannabe, is obviously distasteful. I'll remind you that various persons were given ranks to which they were not entitled during World War II, a much less serious catastrophe than the one in which we are currently engaged. I recall the story of your grandfather, sir, Freeman said. But with due respect, they weren't given commands, sir. As I said, it is premature, Galloway said. And this discussion has been contentious and, yes, tiring. We have time to consider even the subject of the Coast Guard personnel and the cutter. Let us use it. Bureaucrats, Steve said, tossing Kuzma the radio. They're trying to figure out what to do. I said I'd give them three days. Okay, the PO said. What are we going to do in the meantime? I'd run you back to Bermuda and put you on the lodge, Steve said. But it's a six-hour steam both ways, and there are EPIRBs. So just chill, and we'll go rescue people. We can help, sir, Four said. That's the best part of our job. Just rest, Steve said tightly. You're all knackered out, which is normal. You'll recover. I was wrong to use you to clear when you'd just been rescued. Besides, usually there's nobody to rescue. It'd just be nice to have somebody I could trust at my back. But until the powers that be speak, I can't even trust that. Duh, Sophia said. While you were on the horn, we got a call. There's another yacht, 60-footer. Joy, Steve said. How far? About two hours. Make for it, Steve said. It's getting dark, sir, Kuzma pointed out. Odd thing at sea with no clouds, Steve said. You can really tell when the sun's going down, P.O., Steve winced. Sorry, I'm still bloody furious at that bugger on the radio. I understand, sir, Kuzma said. What I was pointing out is that it's getting dark, as in, are you going to do a boarding in the dark? Why not? Steve asked. These things tend to be bloody dark below decks anyway. Really, it's easier in the dark, because you don't have to let your eyes adjust. Oh, Kuzma said, blinking rapidly. How many boardings have you done, sir? I don't know, Steve said. I'd have to check the log. Probably not as many as you, but probably a few more that had zombies on them. No worries. Usually these 60-footers are fairly straightforward. It's the doing them by myself that's getting tiresome. Kuzma moved up to the flying bridge to observe the evolution. 
If you want to tell me anything, go ahead, the Commodore's daughter said, a touch nervously. You've done this a few times before? Kuzma asked. Yes, sir, Sophia replied. This is my 17th approach to a yacht this size. For larger than this, we usually use the dinghy. You come directly alongside, Kuzma said. Yes, sir, Sophia said. If you hold on a second. I don't see any on deck, da. She picked up the intercom. Horn, 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 she called, then hit the foghorn in three short blasts. She waited a moment, then hit two more. That usually brings them out, if there are any that can get on the deck. Come alongside, Steve yelled. Roger, da. She moved up to the yacht and let the wind carry her in the last few feet as the crew put balloon fenders over the side and hurled grapnels to bring the two yachts together. We'd had problems getting those right at first, Sophia said. The balloons. You've got to get them at just the right height. Yes, Kuzma said. He didn't mention that he'd have actively advised against tying two boats together in six-foot swells. Tied down, Paula called. Is that your mate? Kuzma asked. Well, technically, Dad's the captain, Mom's the first mate, and I'm the second. Paula's sort of my mate, if you will. Was she a boater before? Kuzma asked. Ran a t-shirt shop, Sophia said. Pardon, this is a bit tricky. She engaged power to the engines, carefully reversing to port and forward to starboard. It's easier to hold them together if they're into the swells, Sophia said. And the ropes don't snap as much. Well, except when I'm doing this. Kuzma tried not to flinch as he saw the strains being put on the three quarter inch lines that were used on the grapnels. Lines part often? He asked. Yeah, Sophia said. All the time. If we don't use a boat, we salvage all the ropes. When the two boats were arrayed, Wolf leapt from one boat to the other. He was wearing body armor with the standard class 3 PFD on top. His only weapon appeared to be a pistol. He dropped the PFD on the aft deck and entered the interior of the captured yacht. Worry about him when he's in there? Kuzma asked. Not as much these days, Sophia said. But yeah, it's worse with the big ones. Top deck is clear. Evidence of zombies, but none found. Going below. Not infecteds, Kuzma asked. They're humans, Sophia said, shrugging. Not walking dead. More like evil, weaker, insane chimps. But it's easier to think of them as zombies. Ever killed one yourself? Kuzma asked. We made the mistake of going to the last concert in New York City, Sophia said. They had their first real power outage during it. The concert was using generators and lights. The zombies closed in. So, yeah. Don't ask how many. I stopped counting after three or four. The next day, they blew the bridges. My uncle took off for his secure point, and we sailed out. Sailed? Kuzma asked. We were on a sailboat Dad bought when we got the word, Sophia said. We loaded it up with stores, and we were careful with them, but we finally ran out. So we found the toy. Tina was still alive, and Dad just changed. We started doing this. 
You weren't afraid of the flu? Kuzma asked. We got vaccinated in New York, Sophia said carefully. Since you're still sort of a cop, you'll allow me to take the fifth on any more discussion of that, okay? Okay, Kuzma said. But some of that stuff, it was for real, Sophia said, tonelessly. Let's just say my uncle had some connections. And yes, it was the kind made from people's spines, and yes, we knew it. Now, can we change the subject, or are you going to arrest us? No, Kuzma said, shaking his head. I wish I had some. I wish we'd had some. Yeah, Sophia said, shrugging. Put it this way. NYPD was vaccinated up. Take my word for that. They and their families, which took, by my count, about 6,000 spinal cords. Holy crap, Kuzma said, his eyes wide. Seriously? Really should drop the subject, Sophia said. But yeah, I'm sure. You could only get about 10 units per infected. The count I got was 30,000 vaccinated, and you needed primer and booster. 60,000 units. I don't know where they were doing it, but they had to have had an assembly line that made Auschwitz look like Central Park. One zombie already dead in the engine room. I don't think this one is operable. Boat's clear. Call your mom. Wolf, Kuzma, Kuzma said. Mind if I accompany? Up to you, Wolf replied. Grab a respirator, Seawolf said. Respirator? Kuzma asked. For the smell. You get used to it. That was another segment in our complete audiobook serialization of Under a Graveyard Sky by John Ringo. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a huge fund of gratitude and plaudits to that guy I just interviewed. Um, Did I just interview somebody or was that just a monologue? Oh, God, I'm sorry. I thought I was interviewing someone. Now I can't remember. Oh, yes. Eric James Stone, author of Near Future Science Fiction Adventure, Unforgettable. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. Radio Hour is brought to you by Bain Books Audio Drama, presenting dramatized audio plays of the best science fiction and fantasy with a professional cast and cinema quality soundtracks. Now available, Eric Flint's Islands. Based on the novella by Eric Flint. Also available, Larry Correa's Detroit Christmas. Based on the novella by Larry Correa. Set in the world of the Grim Noir Chronicles at BaneEbooks.com. Just put Islands and Detroit Christmas in the search bar and enter a world of listening pleasure. Bane Books Audio Drama. (laughs) 